you've heard of Aldrich Ames, of Kim Philby and the Cambridge Five, of countless other Soviet spies that are essential to the Cold War espionage story. But I wanted to bring you the story of a spy you've probably never heard of. This is an interview with Anne Hagedorn on her new book, Sleeper Agent, The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away. This time on the Cold War Vault. Anne Hagedorn is a former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal and an award-winning author of five previous narrative nonfiction books, including Beyond the River, the untold story of the heroes of the Underground Railroad, and Savage Peace, Hope and Fear in America, 1919. Anne Hagedorn, thank you for being here. There is so much to cover with this book. It is history. It's a spy thriller. It's just not a story that's been told before. As the title says, it is the story of an atomic spy in America. He's the spy who got away. So who was this man? How did he go from an all-American kid from an Iowa town to a trained Soviet agent? First of all, he was uh, a sleeper agent, and I've been asked several times, what is a sleeper agent? So we should probably start with that definition. A sleeper agent is basically a spy without legal diplomatic cover who blends into everyday life uh, in the target country, right? Working in normal jobs, sometimes in cover shops, in this case, at a cover shop on West 23rd Street in Manhattan, and also he was in the U.S. Army during World War II. So this basically is a, the biography of a gentleman named George Koval, a sleeper agent, who was a Soviet military intelligence officer who infiltrated the uh, atom bomb project in World War II as a U.S. Army corporal. And he sent classified information to Moscow um, we could get into the science today, which is rather fascinating because it brings in the polonium, the fuel used uh, in the trigger, but we won't go there at this point. In, in beyond the sort of uh, expected intrigue and deceit of an espionage drama, what I've done in this book is really delve into the psychology of the spy, showing his hopes, fears, beliefs. George Koval clearly had a very American childhood and adolescence in Sioux City, in Iowa. It's not exactly what I would expect from a spy. You know, he, uh, what, you know, really grabs people is, I, I think, from the very start is that he was a U.S. soldier who was born and raised uh, in Iowa. And he was charming. He charmed everyone he met. He loved baseball. He could recite uh, Longfellow. He could recite Whitman. He belonged to a bowling league uh, in uh, Manhattan. He, he was uh, an all-American guy, basically. However, he was trained uh, in Russia as a Soviet military intelligence officer. So, um, 
That's uh, and how in the world did that happen? You actually go back before his birth to his family's immigration, and I really feel like there are answers to be found there. His parents, they were driven out of Russia before the revolution, and then their political evolution in the United States after the uh, establishment of the Soviet state. The story really starts with his parents. George's parents, the spy's parents, came to uh, America. His father came first in 1910, and then he was directed to uh, Sioux City, Iowa. What I tried to do in the book was sort of place the spy at certain ages, at age three, age six, on and on, um, to and, and describing the context of his life at that time. How old was he when the Russian Revolution occurred? You know, how old was he when all of the Red Scare and the belief that Bolsheviks and communists uh, were going to take over the world and overturn the American government, that kind of stuff. So uh, when did that happen in his life? And, and then as he grew older, his parents who had left their home in Russia, you know, generations had left because of uh, anti-Semitism, and they believed this was the land where they would be able to raise their children, own the houses, send their children to great schools, et cetera, et cetera. Then it began again in this country. So basically, uh, the anti-Semitism is what sent his parents out of Russia, but it was the anti-Semitism again that sent them back to Russia in 1932. I found that really fascinating because uh, uh, this is an individual who was surrounded for at least half of his life uh, by um, prejudice, you know? And so what you're looking at is sort of uh, their, you know, they believed that if they returned to Russia, that they would be part of a movement that would end world oppression. So I, I think that's important for us to know what details in a person's life dictate their decisions. I mean, we need to know that when we study these things. When we study the creation of a spy, or or let me, let me say it a different way, I don't think that his bio rises to the level of what we might call the making of a spy. But there's definitely a political undercurrent in his life that made the whole thing uh, possible. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's uh, why I did that. Um, You know, that's part one of the book. You have part one is the lure, which is basically who is this guy? How did he get uh, to the point where he was being trained somewhere outside of Moscow as a GRU spy? So how did he get to that point? Um, The reader has got to I mean, we we have to, I'm one part historian, one part journalist, we have to um, uh, put the reader into the shoes of the main character, right, so that there is this connection, and there are human constants, you know, I think that's the right word, you know, what, so what was his childhood like? And so that that was a fascinating part of the research. Spent a lot of time on that and uh, unearthed some uh, 
intriguing details, uh, very helpful to answering those questions of why did he make the choice, choices he did. Okay, so let's move on to that next phase. After more than 20 years in the middle of all of these changing political currents in the U.S., George Koval's father moves the family from Sioux City, Iowa, to the very, very, very far east of the Soviet Union, to the Jewish Autonomous Oblast. And that's in 1932. Uh, George is a 19-year-old American kid who has this impossibly thick American accent when he tries to speak Russian. He apparently can't roll his R's. Isn't that great? That's a great detail. Yeah, here here you have uh, an intelligence agency that trains people for sometimes two years, I think. I, I am not sure exactly how long um, for a sleeper agent uh, at that point, but uh, one of the problems always is language, you know, that Russian uh, accent. He had no Russian accent whatsoever because he was struggling to learn Russian. <laughs> so yeah, that's a great detail. But um, yeah, so go ahead. So he excels at academics, and in the Soviet Union, he's accepted to the Mendeleev Institute in Moscow for chemistry. Yeah, you know, he graduated from high school when he was 15, and that's a thread all the way through the book, his education, his love of education, his love of uh, being in school, I think. Uh, one of the blurb writers for the book said that he had never read a biography about somebody who personified the Cold War battle of the American dream versus the workers' paradise. So, you know, uh, his um, when you're looking at his wanting to go to school, if he's in the midst of that tug of war ideologically, then his dedication to science diving into chemistry, physics, you understand it. So it's really because of his standout academic performance in chemistry that he's first noticed by Red Army Intelligence. That's the GRU. Why he accepts the recruitment is another ethical issue that I want to get into a, a little later. But he does accept it, and they want him to go back to the United States to investigate um, at first, he's sent to investigate chemical weapons. And so he trains for almost two years as a spy, and they send him on uh, what you call, what the documents call, uh, a business trip. Right. And that, uh, that was a hard part of the research, to figure out how he got back into the country. Yeah, my wondrous uh, Russian translator found uh, uh, the account something he had told uh, his students many, many, many years later, how he got back in. It's just a wonderful story in addition to uh, the documentation of it through a letter he wrote back to Russia to his wife. So we finally found that. But yes, uh, he came back. It's when uh, in the autumn of 1940. Yeah. Uh, he came back to New York where... There is an extensive Soviet espionage network already in place. I highly recommend the book, if only for the details of how these networks were organized and the front businesses and offices 
weren't in shadowy back alleys. They were in plain sight. Um, at one point, the spy network has offices in the Flatiron Building in Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say one of the great adventures of the research was, you know, literally walking the path, you know, in New York. Like at one point, you know, I timed how long did it take to walk from uh, Raven Electric from the address of the main cover shop to the Flatiron building and to the park by the Flatiron building where the handler uh, would sit uh, often, apparently. And uh, well, Truly, uh, four or five people interviewed in the FBI files that talk about his visits to that park. But so, you know, walking and then uh, one of the main offices of the handler at 11 West 25th Street, walking there um, and seeing what, what was in the neighborhood, interviewing the people who own that building about the history of the building, who lived there, all that stuff, and finding out, you know, um, uh, who lived where, who had offices where, and who were these people, when, how did they know each other, did they know each other at that point, like uh, Jacob Golos, another spy, how did he know George Koval's handler, um, you know, it, it's just, I think that I had 47 timelines uh, all together in the research for the book, because you have to put together these chronologies just to see where there's a possible overlap and then see if you can find proof of the overlap. So, you know, it's a multi-step process, but it's quite an adventure. Like I said, one of my favorite parts was just taking a notebook and walking around Manhattan with all of these addresses that I had found in the research and, um, and, and, and then noting the times that uh, the, the months and the years that there was activity in those buildings and then, you know, getting the uh, property taxes and the property uh, history uh, to find out who was uh, renting certain floors. Uh, I mean, it, it was really an adventure. A lot of hard work, but uh, a lot of hard work that was just filled with, uh, you know, sometimes you hit a wall, of course, and then some, sometimes you just have uh, great surprises. I mean, it's like all of research, but you have to keep going. And you have to go beyond the FBI reports because the FBI reports are either redacted or if you get them unredacted, then uh, sometimes there are fabulous interviews and that's helpful. But then you have to take the facts from those and put them in context so that they have meaning. And that, that's where the hard work comes. He enrolls at Columbia University. This is the path that a lot of younger technicians uh, on the project followed. They they followed their professors into the project. Um, was was this his plan? Or I guess I should ask, did your research reveal why he went to Columbia? You know, with a book like this, when there's massive research, you know, thousands of pages of FBI reports, et cetera, et cetera, and then you know, the FBI reports, you have to realize uh, sometimes they just give you uh, one uh, fact. Uh, they, they, they don't explore the context of that fact. I mean, the Columbia University detail is a perfect example. 
you know, I, I ran across that and I uh, had to read it twice. Um, uh, the detail that he had enrolled to uh, take chemistry courses at Columbia uh, and all the facts about, you know, to document it, that was in the FBI report, but it was like, what, what's the context here? Why did he do this? If you're a deep researcher, then you have to figure out the timeline here. What's going on? What's the context? You know, what was happening at Columbia at exactly that time, which is fabulously interesting in terms of the history of science and uh, the Manhattan Project. So, uh, But that's surely not a coincidence, right? I mean, the... Manhattan Project itself didn't exist yet, but he was about to place himself in the perfect position to be recruited into it. So what I mean is joining the chemistry department at Columbia probably isn't a coincidence, right? Well, see, that, that's, uh, that's a really interesting part of the research and the writing process because um, a long time ago, a source of mine with a previous uh, book said in espionage, there are no coincidences. Don't believe there are coincidences. And I, yeah, I never forgot that. And so that was uh, in a couple um, instances, I would see that there was an inference that our gentleman had sheer luck to end up in the Manhattan Project. Well, Having been told many years ago, there are no coincidences in espionage, I thought, no, I am going to dig and dig and dig to find why this happened. And so uh, I don't want to give away too much, uh, but I can just say that by the use of timelines and that example of Columbia, is a per that's a perfect example, um, you, you know, the great thing about the, the detail of his having taken and enrolled in uh, for a chemistry course in uh, what was it the spring of 1941 well just look at what was happening in Columbia in 1941 in the physics department and the chemistry department and also look at what was in the New York Times on May 5th, 1940, a, a big article about the exciting things happening in terms of uh, uh, nuclear fission at Columbia. And so it, it was, uh, you know, those uh, scientists, I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of the book because um, that is a perfect example of context uh, research and also showing it was not just by accident. Did he enroll because he wanted to meet new people, you know, because he was lonely in the new, in his new surroundings? No. Did he enroll because he always loved school? I mean, that that that's probably partly true, right? Or did he enroll because one of the professors there was on a chemical warfare board and his assignment from the GRU was to find out what's going on in America with chemical warfare? All possible. But when you look at the timeline in the history of science and you see what was happening at Columbia when he enrolled, then then you have your answer. He definitely did find his way into Columbia somehow and into the Manhattan Project. And along the way, he also chalks up another unusual accomplishment for a member of uh, the Soviet Red Army. He enlists at the very beginning of uh, 1943 in the U.S. Army 
And he takes with him uh, a lot of that very useful university-level expertise that he'd gotten at, at Columbia and, of course, back in the Soviet Union as well. Let's talk about that. He, after he was, um, after he uh, enlisted in February 1943, then he, he ended up taking a, an army test at the Citadel, and it, he scored, I think, it, it's in the book, 152, I think, for this test. And that was way, way above the highest level, the normal highest level. So he uh, was put into the Army special Specialized Training Program and sent to CCNY to spend a year taking science courses and then he did so well at that and was one of the top people because I actually interviewed someone who was his classmate and, you know, who also went on to Oak Ridge with him. Then when he got to Oak, it, it, what he was chosen for at CCNY was the special engineer detachment, another uh, high level of scientific achievement and smarts, you know, smart guy. Uh so then he was sent to uh, Oak Ridge. The Manhattan Project needed really smart, accomplished scientists. And, um, and the SEDs sometimes became the assistants to the high-level scientists in the Manhattan Project. So he went there. And there he was put into the group of uh, a new group called the health physicists. And, and so, you know, all along, so, so the question is, could this all have been sheer luck? Well, it probably was not some Byzantine plot on the part of Soviet espionage to uh, get him there, but to get him to the point where he got into this uh, series of high-level science assignments, was probably because he was bright and because he already had a four-year degree from a Russian university, which of course they didn't know about, right, in chemistry. So he was in, you read the interviews with people who went to school with him at CCNY or who worked with him at Oak Ridge, you read those interviews and they say, wow, you know, he was so bright. I mean, it was as if he had an advanced degree. Well, he did have an advanced degree, but they didn't know it, you know. So the point here is just simply that, you know, there there is a uh, an analysis here that can allow point by point to see why he ended up at, at Oak Ridge. And then at Oak Ridge, he did, uh, it, you know, he was part of the health physicists and they were needed then at Dayton when polonium process for manufacturing polonium began. So they needed more health physicists and he was transferred to Dayton. They, uh, the luck probably was for the GRU George Koval in the final analysis really was a, a very successful spy. He passed a lot of data on the polonium beryllium trigger mechanism back to his Soviet handlers and, and, of course, was never caught. So I want to leave the red meat of this story for people to discover on their own by picking up the book Sleeper Agent by Anne Hagedorn out this week. But uh, George Koval escaped. In the first chapter of the book, I believe it said of 
George Koval that he had almost impeccable timing. And, uh, and he escaped. He left just in time. As the noose was uh, tightening around his network uh, during the second Red Scare at the beginning of, of the Cold War. Given your research into Soviet espionage, how much do you think we don't know? I guess I could say, uh, how much do we know that we don't know? Well, I think there's uh, there are things we don't know about Soviet espionage uh, in World War II in America. There are going to be doors opening, in my humble opinion. I mean, that's one of my hopes. I hope this book will inspire people to keep going forward, you know. I believe there were others. There had to have been others, but we just haven't uh, found them all. So, um, uh, Speaking of finding these spies who are still secret after all of these years, I want to ask you about your research methods. And also, I want to recommend this book to the Cold War detectives that listen to The Vault based on the end notes alone. It really shines a light on the methods by which this kind of research is done and uh, what it takes to build a biography of someone with a completely secret life. So, Anne, if you could talk a little about the process. Um, I had a Russian translator who uh, did a lot of digging into letters, documents, and books and articles, and uh, then secondary sources like uh, the detail about the March 1st, 1949 report that George wrote, uh, a very, very important detail in the book. And that came out of the Russian Ministry of Atomic Energy via uh, two other scholars, but I wasn't able to travel there. Uh, And always with every book I've ever done, I have traveled extensively, go where your story is. I couldn't do that this time and make the deadline for obvious reasons. So to tell you the truth, it was heartbreaking that I could not go to Russia and do this digging. I know I had people lined up who would have uh, helped me with that. And uh, there there wasn't a way to do it because of the COVID and um, and I really had to finish, uh, I had to complete the books. Uh, but I think that the documentation, as you'll see, and all of the digging that the Russian translator and I did into articles, letters, interviews, secondary sources, uh, books, and, you know, in one case, uh, GRU historian. So a lot of that comes out of uh, the reports that you read uh, in one part of the book it come out of the research the GRU historian did with the GRU documents. The story of George Koval is unique for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that it's the only instance I can think of of an American trained to be a spy by the Red Army. He was not a civilian at all recruited just for ideological reasons. So more than that, though, he was simultaneously in the U.S. Army and had security clearances in the Manhattan Project at two different labs, which I think is just crazy. But I want to read a quote from the book that I think really deserves discussion. 
1932, George had been a passionate idealist, infatuated with communism. And now he was a trained military intelligence officer, locked into an inescapable commitment to the Soviet Union to betray America. I want to get inside of his head. I, I want to ask him, really, why? So, you've conjured this man from the dead. If you could, what would you ask him? Oh, yes, I know. I've thought about that so often. Well, uh, one of the main questions I would ask him, what was the driving force to his decision to basically to, uh, betray his country of birth, right? Um, uh, was it the communist ideal, you know, his belief that communism could end world oppression? I mean, look at the period of time, right? You're fighting against fascism. Or was it the timing? If you look at the timing of when, um, and I, I have that in the book that on September 1st, 1939, you know, he was, he had gotten accepted to graduate school because he had just graduated, right? That was the beginning of the World War and things were changing in terms of his obligations to the army. At the same time, uh, there had been Stalin's purges in the Red Army, among other organizations. And so was it that he had to, and then there are all kinds of details about his position in terms of some letters having to do with family members. So was it because of the communist ideal or was it to protect his family by becoming part of the GRU? because there would have been benefits. And you read later about uh, what happened to his family during the war. And um, so did he do it because of his dedication to the communist ideal, his dedication to uh, his family to protect them? Or did he do it out of his dedication to science? That I mean, I have a list of about five questions I would love to have asked him, but that's the major one. Those That unanswered question is really uh, echoes uh, throughout time. <laughs> you know, it, there's a, a thread, there are several threads in this book, and one is, you know, the decision of his parents to leave or stay in 1910 and 1911, leave or stay in 1932. His decision to go forward with this. Um, I, in my humble opinion, I think he had no choice. You said you have at least five questions. What else do you think might shed some light on this story? So what else would you ask him? I would also ask him uh, whether he, what he was thinking when he uh, came back in 1940 and what he was thinking in 1948 when he left America. You know, at the end of the prologue, I sort of have uh, a few questions. What was he thinking as his ship left, uh, you know, moved past the Statue of Liberty? Big questions. You know, as he was leaving, uh, these questions can never be answered. You can only get those (laughs) questions answered from him. Also, I would like to have known if he had been recruiting. I could find 
there are all these names of people on his applications, you know, who were uh, to reference. Uh, did he recruit them? The recipients of his postcards in 1948 after he left, uh, the postcards he sent from Paris. Were those people, had he recruited them? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I have about five questions uh, I would ask him, but uh, but the main one is what was the driving force? What would you ask him? Well, I'd like to know what his feelings were when he goes back to the Soviet Union and he's essentially betrayed by the Soviet Union, by the the Red Army after he's back. He'd, he'd been in the GRU for 10 years. Right. And he's discharged as a private, having attained no new rank and no recognition whatsoever. And that looks terrible on his record. And so he found himself with nothing to show for a decade of intelligence work and actually set up a pattern of hardship for much of the rest of his life. And I would I would like to to ask him how that made him feel. It's obvious that he was no longer in uh, a socialist utopia. As far as one thing we didn't discuss among his motivations was ego. Did any of this possibly stem from a place of uh, self-importance like many other spies? No, I I don't think so. And I asked, you know, uh, no, I asked, my Russian translator, you know, to dig, 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 see uh, what you can find in terms of the letters, uh, the um, the GRU historians, uh, biography, all that. Uh, and uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it, it was ego. Koval died in 2006, so I guess any questions we have left to ask need to go to you as you've become the expert on this man. <laughs> Thank you, but uh, I, uh, I don't believe anyone is an expert. I'm an expert about the process of finding out about this man. No one is the expert about anyone else except themselves. I suppose that's even more true when you lead a secret life. The book is Sleeper Agent, The Atomic Spy in America Who Got Away by Anne Hagedorn, published by Simon & Schuster, out this week, the 20th of July, 2021. Available everywhere. Anne, thank you for talking with us about this story, about your research, and about your process. Oh, thanks for having me, yeah. And thank you for listening to The Cold War Vault. New episodes are on the way, so follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter to get the updates. And consider joining on Patreon to support the show and get all of the documents that make up these stories. And remember, it's a near certainty that your neighbor is a spy for a hostile government. Turn him in immediately. Until next time. <laughs>